Good evening, and welcome to the Cambridge Festival of Ideas. Thank you very much for coming along to the Mystery of Mystical Seizures. Uh, I hope you have a lovely evening, and thank you for coming. I'll just pass you over to our panel. <laughs> Hello. Get these slides set up for us. Uh, so my name is Joseph Tennant. I will be chairing this panel today. Um, and we have some very wonderful people. Um, I want to emphasize that this panel is primarily focused on getting your questions. We're very eager to have a conversation. So we're going to keep it fairly brief up top, 10 minutes each speaker. And then uh, we're going to turn it over to you. And there will be volunteers with rubbing mics. So think of those questions during the chats and, and really bring, bring them forth. We're looking forward to it. So without any further ado, I'll bring our first speaker up. The Reverend Professor Alistair Coles here from the Department of Clinical Neuroscience. He is also the principal investigator on the Mystical Seizures Project. Please welcome Alistair. Thanks, Joe. So I've been told to speak for, for 10 minutes or less, so I'll watch my clock. So uh, I'm a card-carrying neurologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital, and I'm also a Christian. I'd say that straight up because faith is an important part of uh, today's topic, and by accident I got ordained in the Church of England, and uh, normally these things aren't a problem, but in this very particular issue for tonight, these two worlds have uh, collided for me. A few years back, I was wandering the corridors of Adambrook, minding my own business, when a colleague grabbed me and said, you believe in God. Don't you? And this was not an inquiry for some, uh, you know, some spiritual advice or an evangelistic moment. No, this was more of an accusation. And the reason was there was a patient in the neurology department who was refusing to see a neurologist unless they were a Christian. And it turned out that she had epilepsy uh, and was having unusual experiences during her seizures, which she felt were gifts of God. And when her neurologist said, well, I just want to give you anti-epileptic drugs and get take these away, she said, no. You know, I don't want to, to medicate God out of my life. I need to see a neurologist who's a Christian who will understand this. Uh, and so there, so I was dragged to the outpatient to Adambrook's Hospital to meet this person and try and work out what was going on. And she described these episodes where she would suddenly feel at peace and there would be a sense of illumination, everything would be calm. And sometimes these occurred in situations where she wasn't calm, she was very distressed. And so she experienced these as gifts from God of, of calmness and peace in the context of quite significant distress. Because she'd understood these to be from God, she had uh, grown a religious faith that initially was very orthodox, very Catholic, as it happened, and she ascended the Catholic hierarchy as much as you can as a woman, and she became one of the members of the panel which decide whether or not miracles have happened or not. So she did quite well in Catholic hierarchy terms. But here she now was, and she was brought to Addenbrooke's neurology department by her religious community, by the people who she was living with, who were all affirmed as Catholics, because her, her behavior had become rather chaotic, and without going into the details, certainly wasn't following formal Catholic uh, doctrine. In no way. And... So the religious community felt uh, they had to either find a problem that could be solved with medication or, they, or she would have to leave. Uh, and the outcome was she did leave her community and she didn't take anti-epilepsy drugs. Now, as a result of that encounter uh, and writing about it, uh, people have been sent to me with odd things in their lives which may or may not be religious or epileptic or neurological. And so I've uh, had to struggle with dealing with people as a neurologist who I felt had a disease, and yet as a Christian pastor, they were telling me that their disease was a gift of God. And that has truly been a paradox for me, a difficulty, 
which I haven't resolved, but I'll gladly discuss further later on in discussion. Um, but what it did do, uh, in a positive way, was to lead me to kind of research this topic and to find out that uh, this has been talked about for some time, some centuries, in fact. So Hippocrates, who's the father of modern medicine, uh, did many things to found modern medicine, but one of the very significant things he said was, was to say that epilepsy is nothing but a disease of the brain. Prior to that, people had called it the sacred disease because there was a sense that people with epilepsy were being um, possessed, if you like, or transformed by some spiritual deity. And when I went to work in Nigeria uh, for a few years, I, I re not for a few years, but for a few months, six months, I encountered that very same thing, that people who were having epileptic seizures were thought to have been possessed and they were having spiritual treatment as opposed to anti-epilepsy drugs. So the idea that epilepsy and the religious world might be connected in some way is a very old one. And largely, uh, I'm watching my clock here, largely the work of modern medicine to say that this is nothing but a disease of the brain, I think is a good thing. Because when I saw young African boys going through um, uh, uh, services of exorcism to get rid of these spirits for their epilepsy, I felt that was an awful abuse. And I don't want us to leave here tonight with any impression that we think, this panel thinks in any way, that epilepsy is a good thing in some way. Uh, I hope we can start from a basis that we understand that people with epilepsy suffer all sorts of uh, bad things, including unwarranted prejudice. But, and there is a but, uh, epilepsy offers us a great, and excuse this phrase, experiment of nature. And that's what we're here to discuss. So the experiment of nature is this. That if you want to understand how the human brain and human behavior are linked, it's actually quite difficult to do experiments. I mean, we could take one of you and operate on you and take out a bit of your brain and see what happens, and that would be scientifically robust, but all sorts of people would complain. So, a classic way of proceeding is to look at people who've had strokes or some accidents of the brain, uh, tumors and so on, and say, well, what has happened to their behavior when that part of the brain's been damaged? But it's even more exciting if you're able to see what happens when this or that part of the brain is electrically stimulated. And uh, that is what epilepsy is. So, just to remind everyone, epilepsy is a disease where part of the brain is uh, inappropriately stimulated, and people who have this experience the symptoms that are attributable to that part of the brain. So, if you have uh, this part of the brain, stimulated by epilepsy, then that arm will shake and so on. So what's really interesting here from a neurological point of view is if someone has a seizure where they say they're having some very special and unusual experience, even mystical, and we'll discuss whether that's a thing or not, then what part of the brain is that? What part of the brain is responsible for that? Is there, and does epilepsy tell us, that there is a special part of the brain that's responsible for mystical experience. So that's my, my blurb. Thank you so much, Alan. Wonderful. So our next speaker is me. Um, so I'm a, I'm a research associate in the Department of Clinical Neuroscience, until recently also at the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion. Um, and I am essentially executing this project. I'm, I'm helping bring it... You're actually uh, doing it. Also, yes. <laughs> um, it's nice when the boss says that. So I, I, I call this, we, we call this the mystery of mis mystical seizures. And I think for some people, the first question that comes out of that is what are mystical seizures? I, I see one or two nods on that. Um, and it's interesting because we've had, a, we've had a, a challenge with this project in that we have two kind of loaded terms that mean a lot of different things in a very short space. 
um, some of which are very contested. So when we look at the, the, the definition of mysticism or mystical, um, we see a very contested term. We see a lot of different religious traditions that try to define it, pin it down, say that this is theirs and the others are not real mysticism. Certainly if you start looking through some of the older texts, and I suspect we'll get more of this from some of our other panelists, you'll see things that are included or not included. So some people think visions are definitely part of it. Other people say visions have no, no place in mysticism. Those are hallucinations or a different kind of religious experience entirely. And so pinning down what we mean by mystical is very challenging. And so we've opted for a somewhat broad definition, I think would be fair to say. We try to be inclusive in this. And really, the two things that we've hit on the most are this sense of connection to a divine or transcendent thing. This out-of-the-body, out out-of-the-material kind of object or sense. And that we also have this emotive component. Something emotional is happening. Or you have the emotions calming. And that, I think, despite the many things that you can include in mystical camp, visions, sounds, pick the ones that you think are the most significant. We, we want to include them as much as we can. Um, as Alistair has already talked to you about, a seizure is this uh, transient occurrence of signs or symptoms, essentially electrical activity in the brain that is not working the way it's supposed to, if you want to get somewhat crude with it. Um, and I mentioned this to say that uh, epilepsy is also very tricky because it is a fairly broad diagnosis category. So I mean, epilepsy in the strictest sense is defined as the propensity to have two or more seizures a year unprovoked. That can mean a lot of different things in terms of the architecture of the brain. And so we have generalized epilepsy, focal epilepsy, sort of like all over the place, one area in the brain. Sometimes we just don't know, cryptogenic epilepsy. So when we say mystical seizures, this could mean a huge range of things. And trying to define it, I think, is very tricky. So I picked sort of two ways to talk about it. One is this I think a little more close to the, the chest technical, this idea of a, a seizure in which one of the symptoms includes this experience of a transcendent thing. Uh, something I think is more helpful maybe is it's a mystical experience mediated by unusual electrical activity in the brain. And I use this word mediated specifically to note that we're not making any claims of authenticity in this study. We're not saying whether it's caused by an outside force or not. We're simply saying the brain is involved. Um, and this, this electrical activity, unusual electrical activity, is meant to be a contrast to what you might call healthy or typical um, religious mystical experience. Because this is not someone sitting down and meditating and feeling a connection to their deity. This is sudden. This is onset. This is unchosen. And that, as Alistair so nicely described previously, is very helpful in thinking about this as a bit of a natural experiment. So... I, uh, having laid out all the problems we have, I mean, you start to wonder, how do you even study this? How do you go about looking into this? And because there are many complications when looking at this phenomenon. One is you can't plan seizures. And I think for people with epilepsy, one of the most challenging features of that disease is the unpredictability. It's that you don't know when it's going to come about. Sometimes people get warning signs, but for the most part, it's a fact of life that could strike at any moment. And so from a research perspective, that's very challenging because we can't exactly put someone under a scanner at the right time and get it. It's, it's very serendipitous if we, if we capture data. Secondly, we can't simulate that experience as researchers. I can't induce a mystical seizure on myself. Like, it, it is a black box in that regard. And patient accounts, patient descriptions are one of our key data sources. We also can't predict who will have them. Within the epilepsy population, you have general epilepsy. Then you have focal epilepsies, which specific parts of the brain are affected. In our case, we're interested in the temporal lobe, so then you zoom out into the temporal lobe. But even within the temporal of epilepsy population, it's not clear who in that population will have one of these seizures. So we're really sort of casting a very wide net in that community to try to find people who have had them. And when we do that, we can't always reliably identify them, because this is related to clinical notes. Many clinicians aren't looking out for these, and they, as Alistair's story has indicated, don't necessarily know quite how to handle these experiences. They don't have necessarily have the language to talk to people who are convinced these are religious in some way. So there's, there's quite a few difficulties in doing this research. Um, so I, I wanted to talk a bit about how we did it, and we'll spend not as much time on this. Um, we have a pre-screen survey we gave out in clinics. We looked at clinical reports and looked at um, the EEG medical, uh, and, and MRI data. Um, we haven't commissioned any for this study, as I said. It's kind of serendipitous to catch any relevant data. Um, and I want to take a moment to acknowledge Dr. Sophia Erickson at UCL for helping us get access to these data. She's been instrumental in this project occurring. Um, I gave out some surveys, which I encourage you to ask me about after. Um, and most interestingly for me as a cultural psychologist are the in-depth interviews we did, which uh, range from 25 minutes to about an hour 10, depending on how talkative people are, in which we really try to get at 
the subjective experience of these kind of seizures. You know, we, we asked how they felt. When did it start? How long did it last? When did it end? Does anything else happen during the seizures? Did it feel good? Did it feel bad? Do you want more of them? What do you think caused them? Has this changed your life? Like we really had long, really rewarding talks with people about these phenomena because the human element is, I think, the most neglected in the literature. Um, I, I imagine Alistair could probably give me a nod on that one. It is the thing that is not present in reports. So our, one of our big innovations in the study is to add that element. Um, and finally, um, we also did this interview protocol with uh, neurotypically healthy religious people. Um, so this was uh, ordinands who are training to be priests, and we asked them about their experiences in the same way. Um, and this is also in part to get at that contrast of what is sort of the typical religious tradition and what is the sudden onset. And this is to highlight whether they're the same or not. Because when we're thinking about some of the things that make this so mysterious, it would be interesting to see if they were the same. Because there's, there's a couple of reasons it's mysterious. I want to break that down, and I'll get to that last point at the end of this. These are mysterious, A, because they're rare. I've, I've highlighted how hard it is to study these things. Um, and it's not just that it's you know, difficult to predict with patients will have them. It's also that these are much rarer than we thought they'd be. We have an estimate now about 19% of people with temporal lobe epilepsy have these experiences, 8% of the general epilepsy population. So we're talking about a very small class of people who have these at unpredictable times. And so it, we have a lot of unresolved questions in that regard. And uh, this, this, this study is trying to do its best, but the largest case study in history of Earth is 11 people, and we are approaching that strongly with nine. So it, it's, it, these, are, these are very unique experiences, to say the least. These are also mysterious because they're profound. Um, so not just within our patients who do cite these as very important experiences, as life-changing experiences. One of our patients has had a religious conversion because of their experience. But historically, these things were also seen as profound. Um, so there's a very interesting case of uh, St. Brigitte of Sweden, uh, who was studied by uh, Anne-Marie Lampplum. They found her skull in a reliquary uh, and investigated that, and it looked as though she probably had temporal epilepsy. Now that is, depending on your, your faith perspective, either damaging or, or excellent, but it is, it, it is, there's no way to say that these kind of experiences haven't shaped lives and shaped religious traditions and shaped countries. So it's, these, these are profound, and they, they merit further study. Um, these are also mysterious because they're highly variable. And this is one of the things we found in our contrast, is the experiences of our patients were not uniform. We, we were wondering maybe if they would have similar experiences to the faith traditions that they come from, or they would have experiences similar to each other but distinct from religious traditions. And what we found was a group of people whose experiences are unique, uh, basically individual to individual. And there's a couple of uh, parallels between some of those communities. Features like light and calm were one of them, definitely. But we've had people who have had fantastic transportive visions. We've had people who have had sounds, people who have been struck by the absurdity of human life. It, it, I, I, each person is, is its own unique experience, and it's fascinating to me. And it also suggests that, well, we don't, <laughs> we don't really know what's going on in terms of whether or not religion is something born naturally in the brain. And this is kind of scary. Because um, the implications for these kind of experiences are wide-ranging in terms of, and I have to take off the psychology hat now, because I am not a theologian or a philosopher, but this is technically that field, um, and I apologize to any of you who are. But I mean, mysticism was proof of, uh, proof of religious traditions for basically all of them. And I think that's a weird, crass thing to say in some ways, but it is. Like that, that's, if you, if you, if you want to know religion is real, someone would tell you, oh, I God, talk to me. And that was kind of how that goes. I mean, that's certainly the case for this patient, certainly the case for the Greeks before Hippocrates said no. And so if we start medicalizing, if we say, well, we can attribute this, we can show that it's correlated and mediated to the brain, in this case, in epilepsy, does that pose doubts to religion? Does that make you question whether this faith is as authentic as we thought? Is it just brains? And from the other perspective, and this is from my perspective as, a, as, a, as an atheist, Taking these claims seriously is also something that's very difficult because if you take a, a stance that people's experiences are authentic, that you can trust what people say about themselves and their experiences, having someone say, well, I didn't plan to, but I heard the voice of God, if you take that seriously, that starts to make you question what the brain is capable of and whether the brain is for hearing the spiritual or the divine. It's, these are really difficult, profound things. Um, especially in cases where people are not trained in a tradition. And so they don't have the language of the faith telling them or teaching them how God is supposed to talk to you. 
So these, this is a lot of stuff I've raised in a short amount of time, and I think it's, it's mostly geared at being provocative and getting questions from you all, and I'm excited to talk more. Um, but that is sort of where we're at without diving too deep into the data. So I want to bring up our next panelist now. Um, this is Ian Ball, our freelance writer and editor, and he's going to talk to you. And I'm very excited to hear what he has to say. Could we please welcome Ian. Um, so I'm here because um, I've, I took part in the study because I've had uh, one of these experiences. Um, my experience happened while I was living in India, and um, a lot of Westerners in India get their spiritual experience on the hippie trail. I got mine in the hospital. Um, I was one night in January 2010, I was at a swimming pool, and everything turned sepia-colored, and I climbed out of the pool to try and explain what was happening to a friend, and I found I couldn't speak, and I couldn't remember any words at all. And the next thing I know, it's two days later, and I'm waking up in a hospital. And uh, I just had two days of quite severe grand mal seizures. And it was my first experience of epilepsy. Um, none of it was mystical, I should point out. In fact, I don't remember any of those seizures at all. Um, and the cause of it was a chondroblastoma tumor of the temporal bone. Um, uh, a few days after I had it removed, I, was, I started to have odd experiences in the hospital, which I, I now call breakfast meetings with the universe. Um, on the first morning, I remember, I think I woke up with the sunrise, and I remember the light waking, I remember a strong sense of the light touching the wall and waking up and being just profoundly amazed by the wall above my hospital bed. Uh, it just seemed miraculous to, that it existed at all. And I don't think I was, you know, I wasn't feeling relieved that I was still alive. I was, I was actually feeling that the wall itself was alive. And this was this expanded into an experience which was very difficult to explain uh, or to convey in words. Um, but I, it was a, I felt transported and as though I was being revealed profound truths, about, fundamental truths about reality, basically, um, which are as follows: um, <laughs> um, everything in the universe, animate or inanimate, is conscious. Um, you know, including walls, tables and chairs, pot plants, dust, stars, cheese, sandwiches. Um, and it's all part of the same thing. Um, past, present, and future uh, sense of linear time is an illusion. Everything is actually happening in a single eternal moment. And everything is bound by an absolutely extraordinary, unconditional love. And I would have this experience for about two hours, probably. It would go on, and I would just be in a complete daze, lying in my bed. And and then it would sort of, I would often cry and hide in the bathroom because I didn't want anybody to ask me what was going on. And then it would fade and I would feel cranky and exhausted and I would sleep for the rest of the day, most of the time. And I, I, it's hard to say how long this went on, but it went on for weeks and I would say it was at least four weeks. Um, and it happened every morning and then fade. And it started off very powerfully and then gradually diminished in intensity over that kind of month-long period. Um, and I think it sort of diminished my any fear of death I had uh, at the time. And uh, I remember after I left the hospital, I, it was already starting to become a much less intense experience, but it was still going on even after I was walking around. And uh, one day I had to go to the, I had to buy a new fridge. And <laughs> so I went to the department store. I remember walking around looking at these shiny fridges with this really increasingly disappointed sense that the ineffable had sort of effed off. Anyway, so I tried to explain it to my neurologist. Um, and he, well, I asked him what he thought was going on. And he just looked a bit awkward and said, um, well, it's temporal though. People often report strange experiences. I wouldn't worry about it. And when I tried to talk to um, friends about it, I often I had quite a lot of atheist friends, and they would say, I remember one of them saying, oh, you haven't gone all religious, have you? And, and the question of whether or not I had gone all religious or not was something that kind of stayed with me long after the experience. And I think if you'd have asked me in the first year or two what meaning I attributed to that, I would probably, to the experience, I would have told you that, I, yes, I was getting real insights into the nature of reality. Um, but it's been eight years, and I don't feel quite the same way. Um, and I've spent a lot of time trying to process it and make sense of what it actually means. Um, 
I mean, the, the thing that sticks with me is that it was a profoundly emotional experience on the same scale, I would say, as falling in love or being in a state of profound grief. So, so the idea of just going fully rational and dismissing it as a, a neurochemical aberration of a damaged brain has always seemed to me to be a sort of self-limiting thing to do, a, sort of a foolishly self-sabotaging strategy of trying to approach the experience. Um, but I think, uh, you know, what the experience did was probably remove any sense that I, of meaninglessness or a sense that the universe is, is absurd. Uh, and it, is it, but was it a, an aberration or a revelation? And I think I probably got to the point where it doesn't really matter to me anymore whether or not it was a result of a damaged brain or divine force because the, the thing that stays with me is that that memory of the sense of an endless unconditional love, which is such an inspiring idea that whether or not it's, you know, where it comes from, that no longer really matters. It's just something, the idea of just trying to live in the spirit of that idea is, is enough on its own. Um, not that I can say that you could actually live in that state that I was in, in the hospital. I don't think anybody could live in that state. Um, but it's something to aspire to. And I think it probably did change my outlook a bit, gentled me a bit, made me more of a empathetic a little bit to other people, other life forms. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's it. Thank you. Thank you so much again. That, that is, that, that's a lot to share, and I appreciate you spending the time on it. So I want to welcome up our, our last speaker for tonight as uh, Rabbi Mordecai Zeller, university chaplain and uh, clinical and educational psychologist. So uh, uh, Rabbi, please, please welcome. Hello, everybody. Um, you know, I'm going to hopefully read a couple of sources and um, of, I would say, in the history of Jewish mysticism, a lot of tales of people entering into different states of consciousness and having something that appears very similar to what's been described here. You know, we live in a world where, and I guess this is in the name of uh, Thomas Schatz, where he said, uh, if you speak to God, you're religious. But if God speaks to you, you're a schizophrenic. And, um, and that's, I mean, the world where going to pray is one thing. But what do we know? How do we, what do we do when somebody hears the voice of God speak through him, speak to him? If we look at Jewish mystic, mysticism or at just ancient texts, there are descriptions of people entering into these divine mystical states. And um, the earliest ones you know of are prophets. The prophets were people who, you know, the, our tradition says that they were schools of prophecy, people who went to study how to become a prophet. But you never knew if it was going to happen or not. And when it did happen, we have this romantic notion that it was this beautiful moment where God, the Word of God, speaks through you. But it was a terrifying moment. People, I mean... We know that Jonah ran away when he heard God speak to him. He didn't want to be there. It's terrifying. When God speaks to Abraham, it says that suddenly this great terror fell upon him. And, and, and it says that this darkness fell upon him. And the word fell, nofel in Hebrew, um, appears again and again in prophets. King Saul, when he suddenly receives prophecy, he falls, and he falls to the ground from the intensity of the experience. And he was there almost all night, shaken. So we have these experiences of many prophets that something happens to them on a somatic body level when they hear the voice of God. When the people of Israel stood on Mount Sinai, it says that when they heard the voice of God, they, it says, they, they shook and they moved away. And some people say that the experience was almost like their soul left them and then came back. So these somatic experiences that we're seeing some of these connections between what happens during seizures and during these epileptic attacks. And to see a correlation doesn't always show us the directionality of it. And we know that there's a connection. What causes what? Is there a predisposition for mystical experiences? Are there people who walk this world and suddenly they're moved? Um, it's hard to tell. What I want to share with you is... Um, from a beautiful text. It's a mystical diary written by a man whose name is Rabbi Chaim Vital. He was uh, from a city called Sfat, um, in, who's the mystical city 
in the north of Israel, and he wrote a diary. I don't think he meant for it to be published. Actually, one of the oldest copies of this diary appears um, in Wren Library. You can actually see it was a copy of the original diary. And uh, he wrote down his dreams, because we know in our tradition also, a dream is a vision. And they say in the Talmud that a dream is a 60th of, of prophecy. So this is a description that he writes, not of a dream he had, but of um, when his teacher, Rabbi Isaac Luria, he sent him to go on a mystical practice. He went to a sacred space. He went to a sacred space where there was a cave, and he was told to repeat some certain names as unifications. And this is what he described what happened to him here. So I'm reading from his diary. And this is from the year 1571. Okay. I imagined all this in my thoughts. And suddenly, as he's doing this unification, a great fear and trembling came over my limbs, and both my hands were shaken. My lips were also trembling in an exaggerated manner, moving back and forth very rapidly, as if a voice were saying very rapidly the following phrase more than a hundred times. What is he saying? What is he saying? What is he saying? I held on to my lips, trying to stop this voice, but I could not silence them completely. I then thought to ask about wisdom, and then the voice exploded from my tongue and lips, saying, the wisdom, the wisdom, more than 20 times. And then it returned and said, the wisdom and the knowledge, several times. And then it returned and said, the wisdom and the knowledge will be given to you. And then it returned and said, the wisdom and knowledge will be given to you from heaven, like the knowledge of Rabbi Akiva, and more than Rabbi Akiva. And then it said, peace on to you. And from heaven you are sent greetings. All this was in great rapidity, a wondrous thing. Many times, while I was awake, I prostrated myself in the cave. So he's describing here in his diary that his teacher sent him to do something. But as he's doing it, suddenly something happens. It's almost like he's awake, but he loses some control of his body. His mouth starts speaking, and the words, he's thinking one thing, and his mouth is answering another. These are experiences we know from a lot of mystics in this time. A magid, almost like a, um, uh, a being who would speak through them. Something, you know, if I'm speaking as a psychologist, something unconscious, something deep from way beyond, which is suddenly voiced. But he's looking down at his mouth speaking, but it's not his conscious heart speaking. It's something else. And he came back very shook up from this, from this experience. And his, math, his master said, something happened there. You know, in this process of, as a mystical experience, of connecting to some characters who were buried there, some ancient rabbis, some ancient teachers, and in receiving these guides, something happened that was beyond. So this is just one example. We know that in spot many people would enter into these trance-like states where they would either write sometimes. Sometimes somebody's hand would start writing, and they would do an automatic writing, and sometimes speaking. And in all these things, we... Um, we're left with a lot of questions, but looking at it through what we know today and reading some of these things through the eyes of what's being discovered is, is pretty fascinating. There's a teaching in the Talmud that says that prophecy was given after, you know, in our time to children and to fools. Now, fools doesn't mean what we mean today. It means people who, uh, who aren't completely living in the reality that we do. And I think for a lot of people, when you see, and this is the saying says, where do you find the word of God? How does somebody, you know, who isn't just completely swallowed up by reality, and you'll be able to see that voice which takes you a little bit beyond. In the Hasidic tradition, and I'll end with this short story, the great Hasidic master, the Magad of Mezrich, Dilzer of Mezrich, so he had many students, and when he was teaching, as he said the name of God, one of his students, whose name was Zusha, fell to the ground. He said, he started teaching, and he said, God spoke to Moses. The minute he said God, he fell to the ground, started shaking, yelling. God, something was happening, and, and he would faint. And then the Magad of Mezrich would keep on teaching, and he'd teach for an hour or two. And as he would finish his teaching, Zusha, under the floor, right, as everybody's sitting around, would just wake up. And all of the students would say, Zusha, you missed out. 
the Magid taught the most amazing teaching. You missed out. And the Magid shut them up and he said, no, you're wrong. He's the only one who actually got it. Thank you. So at this point, our volunteers are going to come around with microphones, and we're very interested to hear what questions you have, and I think we're very eager to respond as best we can. So please uh, just raise your hands. Thank you. Um, so Mark, you, you referred to trance-like um, conditions, and I would like to ask, um, are trances the same, um, you know, are they uh, sort of equivalent, comparable to the sort of mystical seizures that you're talking about? Because it um, or, or not, because it seems like uh, they come in at different directions, perhaps, or maybe they don't. Uh, well, I'll give a neurologist answer. So um, there are different sorts of trances, but for, for sure uh, people can have prolonged epileptic seizures, and this would be called a fugue, where they lose sense of what's around them, but can carry on kind of operating, walking, talking, whatever. Um, but that is a very small fraction of what trances are. Uh, so if you're referring perhaps to the trance that's induced by meditation or a practice like that, then those are definitely not induced epilepsy. Uh, firstly, thank you so much. It was really interesting. And it reminded me very much of there's... Um, stroke of insight, the TED talk, and the woman's written about her having uh, a stroke of her left hemisphere, and she went into like bliss and oneness, and there's also um, a psychiatrist, Ian Gilchrist, and he talks about the difference between the left and right hemisphere, and, and that possibly it's um, the over-dominance of the left hemisphere that's created many of the troubles or whatever in the world. I just wondered whether there's any relationship that you found with that between the left and right hemispheres and whether there's a correlation with the mystical and, yeah, if there's any connection there. Certainly. Well, thank you for that question. Um, so one thing that we were actually somewhat surprised to find, I think, was that there was no queer lateralization. We haven't seen any favored sides, so to speak. And I think we were expecting to find something a little more like, well, here's the place, <laughs> or you know, not, not one specific like god spot or something, but a, a region that might be a good candidate. And we've seen, I mean, we've basically seen no pattern outside of it centered in the Temple Road. So it, it, that's really not borne out, actually. It was a bit of a surprise for us. Hi, uh, thank you for the talk. I'm just wondering, similarly, well, not similarly, is there a connection between your research and re any research that's been done into people experiencing the divine through substances? So that could be, you know, plants or man-made substances. Uh, thanks. So we, we, we do get the drug question at every talk. Um, so we have, we have considered it for sure. I mean, there there are... So there, there are some similarities in the sense that, are you familiar with the Good Friday study that some people, so essentially there's, I'm probably not going to do the best job of this, but they gave several willing participants psilocybin and took them to Good Friday Mass. And unsurprisingly, they were very moved by it. Um, that, that really worked for them. And the study was better replicated um, with a, a comparison between uh, psilocybin and I believe it was uh, Ritalin, sort of the mild amphetamines. Um, and what was interesting that is that they had everyone sort of have their hand held by the by the cohort um, and listen to classical music and just have nice little sort of like sunglasses on. And people in psilocybin found out to be one of the most significant experiences of their life. Um, what was interesting to me, though, was that 25% of the people in the Ritalin control condition reported that as one of the most significant experiences of their life. So it... I, I'm sort of back and forth on how much the, the drug studies teach us because on the one hand, it, psilocybin is clearly stimulating something that has this mystical quality to it. But on the other hand, it seems like speed kind of does too. And it, it, how much of that is attribution of people in an altered state to this is important and how much of that is a specific region of the brain is unclear to me at this time. So, I'll just say that... Um some of the drug research in the Good, Good Friday um, experiment 
Um, I think there's something about sometimes when we say that there's an external substance that can open something up, is that a real mystical experience or not? Because we tend to look at things that either stimulate or open up, or I would say even in religious circles, to look down at those kind of things as not real. And what is real and what isn't real? Is a voice coming from, when we speak of the voice of God, as something which is real? Does it mean that it comes from the outside? Does it mean that it wasn't, um, nothing was used? We know that a lot of ancient cultures and traditions have used all kinds of psychoactive um, substances as part of their, not recreational, but spiritual practice. So here we have things that are definitely used as a real, authentic way of opening something up. And in that case, there are, I mean, I'm, I'm not, as someone from the outside, there are, when, when I read some of these descriptions, there's something similar um, in, in, in that case. Oh, sorry. <laughs> You've spoken from the tradition of the West and, and from the Jewish tradition. What about uh, other religious groups altogether, particularly in the Far East, that have no link with our, our sort of faith world at all? Yeah, so um, the data on this, um, in terms of the epilepsy literature, is not, it's, it's not great. Um, it's fairly minimal. There is an interesting study out of Japan with three cases in which uh, people were having experiences somewhat like these. And there, there is some interesting variability. So one patient would have these visions of the sutras coming down on a cloud and then really be convinced that there was this unifying world religion that all, all sort of faiths and creeds could fall under and would go on about that quite a bit. Another woman would see a, a sort of an incredible burning sun, though sometimes she would talk about it, remember it, and one time she did remember it, and it was sort of, she was talking about the sun a lot and how bright it was. So there's, there, there's there's some suggestion that, that this is happening cross culturally. In the voodoo context, it's seen as much more of a scary thing. Where people would have experiences of sort of feeling like they were leaving their body, and that would warrant the uh, the attention of a spiritual healer. So it's it, I, unfortunately not being from these places or having great connections in these places. I can't do more than just read the literature as much as I'd like to. Um, so it, it yeah, I, I think that's all I have to say on the subject, unfortunately. But. Uh, just before we get to the next question, I'd like to ask the panel a question. Uh, so I'd like to ask Ian a question. Um, so so for, for me, this gets to the nub of the matter. So there you were in India. Uh, you'd been out of it for two days. You'd had an operation. You were in a hospital. Clearly, this is a bad thing, right? Mm. You know, it's a medical thing. And... Uh, you have these experiences, and you said, and I'm paraphrasing, that you wanted to respect the memory of those experiences and the significance of them for you. You didn't want to denigrate them in some way. So how are you holding those two things in your head? I mean, are you, are you just parallel tracking and saying, well, this thing is medical and it is this? Or are you saying that the whole episode was somehow good, that having a tumor was somehow good? Uh, um, how are you making sense of that? Right. Well, I think, yeah, at the time I remember feeling profoundly that it was a gift, which is odd, in the midst of all this you know, really horrible experience. Um, it but I think that gift thing is, is a common, you know, it, it, you're not the first to say that. Right. Um, I do, you know, it was a life changing thing and it helped me at the time. And as I said, I think what I strongly think it helped me do was, was diminish that fear of death. Theory that something terrible was going to happen to me, so that. Um, and I think, you know, to, to answer the other part of the question, how do I reconcile this idea? As I said, my my, I've been trying to get my head around this aberration versus revelation mm -hmm. thing uh, for ages, and I've, I've, I think I have got to the point. I, is it a cheat to say that I can I can hold both at the same time? I think I I do. Um, in the sense that, I, as I say, I, I'm not sure that some parts of the experience, you know, I was thinking about this, the whole kind of, there is no linear time and um, everything is conscious. Because I think, you know, you have to worry about whether, you know, is the table conscious or not. I'm not going to go down that path, but I will say the emotional aspect of it is enough. Because whether, you know, to have experienced that emotion, either I generated it through my brain 
or, or God credit to me. And either way, it's, it doesn't really matter where it comes mm-hmm. from. It was such an incredible feeling that that's, some, that's enough. That's really helpful. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. I enjoyed all the presentations, especially the interesting part. And I was in the same central region in the studio. I had this kind of revelation. I fainted and I woke up and I thought, this is like data. And everybody said he was just acting good and acting as good as smile on the face of it. So that is an interesting episode. Thank you for being fun. Making out that I'm not the only idiot in this room. Uh, I've been thinking about the problem of fakery, but nobody's mentioned this, um, and I think it's quite important to say that we have holy pools in Islam, that's Rajiv Khanja, we have holy pools in, uh, in Judaism, uh, we have holy pools in Russia, I'm thinking of the operas uh, in, in Russia, in Putin people. Um, and of course, we have uh, bakeries where uh, people, some of them dying to be saints, have brought Lord like apparitions, which have been satirized as wonderful and marvelous. It's a marvelous, marvelous film where a young boy. Is taught that in Fatima and Lourdes, the, the village is going to get a great deal amount of money from having seen a vision of the Virgin. So, of course, the boy is taught that vision of the Virgin, and indeed, the village gets uh, huge amounts of money, huge amounts of coverage, films, documentaries, everything. So, um, the question is how much um, real fakery is involved? To make publicity for themselves to be able to write books about it and get television coverage. It, it's a very important question for me because I'm an atheist and all the religious folks of foolery that we get in places like Asma and North, all the people who hand over their crutches over uh, and that have voted facts. This makes me very uncomfortable about how rich these villages are. Uh, I'll, I'll chip in. I mean, it's a very important point. So, uh, in a sense, you're going back to the question, how do you judge the authenticity of these experiences? And I'll have an answer. I'd, I'd be really interested in Mordecai. So, um, the more I've spent time with people with unusual experiences like Ian, uh <laughs> the less and less interested I've become in the content of the experience. Uh, I'm much more interested in its effect. So my authority from that for that comes from two places. So William James, who's the father of psychology in the Western world, wrote a book on the varieties of religious experience. And he said in the first chapter uh, that essentially if you wish to judge the authenticity, judge it by the fruits of the Spirit, the quotes of Christian scriptures. And that is my second source, which actually, if you look in the New Testament particularly, uh, the the um, Christian Bible, New Testament, um, no offense, uh, uh, um, there is a great deal of discussion amongst the early Christian church as to how to judge what's going on. And you find a great deal of cynicism amongst believers around experience and much more concern as to day-to-day impact. Uh, so that's how I've ended up. So when people come and say, is this from God, and they start to describe these very florid and complicated things, I slightly lose interest and much more concerned to hear what the impact and significance it is it has uh, had for their lives. Mordecai, does that ring true, or are you worried by that? I was uh, I, I, I was in a synagogue once in um, in Tzfat actually, and um, there's a, a um, there's a book called the Shulchan Aruch, the book of of 
Jewish laws, just what do you do? And one of the things there says, when you pray, your body should shake. So I remember seeing a person who read that and just literally would pray and start kind of shaking his body because that's what the book said. But there was something almost comical about that because sometimes these texts describe something which isn't something you do, but something that happens. And yes, sometimes there are secondary gains in entering into these states, but usually living the life of a prophet and living the life of somebody who experiences these things was difficult. It meant that you were separated from the normal family life and from people around you and sometimes looked down upon. These weren't the people who were the most popular or greatest. They were, they were lonely. They were alone with their experiences. I think we know how to kind of look back at it and kind of see it in a bit of a different way. Um, and I mean, yes, there's a power of suggestion sometimes or wanting certain things to happen. Um, definitely the, the, the diary here was his personal diary. I don't think he meant anybody, he, he meant for anybody to find it. But yes, he's trying to understand um, who he is, what he's about, the, the, the power of, of, of the reason that he came into this world. So there is something sometimes narcissistic a little bit about, um, about these writings. But I usually find that people who have let the spirit or have walked in this path, that the, the price they pay is greater than, than, than the gains that came with it. So um, I don't know, it makes me wonder. I mean, I'm sure there are people who are inauthentic and are looking for the wrong reason. Or, I mean, our traditions are the people who their whole life they sat and really did everything they could to achieve prophecy, and it just didn't come. It just didn't come. Are there differences between the experiences of the religious and the non-religious, or with the impact on their lives? Yeah, so um, there, there are some differences, and I think you, what's interesting to me is that prior religious background is definitely something that's talked about in people's accounts. Um, whether or not that is the defining feature, whether how they treat these is not always the case. And some people are raised in, in religious traditions and aren't really religious in their personal daily life. They have these experiences with their church. We definitely have a person who expressed that to me. Um, another was in a church and found it to be very bad and left it and then had these experiences and started going back. Um, and so that was that, that was sort of a return thing. We had one person I said there was a, a religious conversion. It was someone raised in the Christian tradition, really didn't spend much time with it, and had just this profound, intense encounter with God. And you said, that, that, there it is. Um, and and you speak a, a devout Christian when it happens. So it's, I mean, the background religion plays a role, for sure. But I don't think it's everything. Um, and I think that's in part because, A, we have an increasing secularity in the UK in which people are really grappling with doubts more. Doubts are more present in the discussion. And I think in America you see a little less of this. Um, though it is there. Um, and I think the second thing is is that Many of many world religions are, in fact, worldly, and so there's a lot of encounter with it. So even if you don't grow up in that tradition, some of those features are, are things you know of. I mean, you know, many many secular people don't necessarily know the whole Bible, but they know the idea of God and the big concept. So it's really hard to separate out the culture in that way. And there's some correlation, but I, I you can't make a causal claim on that at this time. You really can't. Yeah, actually, I was gonna, I was going to say that before I, something I didn't point out that before this happened, I certainly didn't consider myself from a religious background, and I didn't have I describe myself as an agnostic before then. I was my first book agnostic, um, and so I don't really feel if if I had come from a Christian background or a religious background, I'm sure I I, I wouldn't have had any problems sort of seeing that experience into that worldview at all. I would that could easily I could have put that down to God, which is something I've thought about since, which is. You know, maybe what I had was some sort of raw, some kind of raw version of spiritual, what we call spiritual experience. And and then, because there's not an awful lot, it's like a signal, there's not an awful lot of information. And then you're kind of trying to interpret what it means. And I can imagine you kind of easily bolting on other bits, other details onto the sides of this experience to try and give it a, a, a place in, you know, in the world. Or as a religion. And if I could just add that I know a lot of people who are very orthodox, but spirituality is of no interest to them. And I know a lot of people in today's world 
um, who can be deeply spiritual and deeply mystical, even though they don't belong to any religion. And I think that's an amazing thing in today's world. <coughs> so, so when people have these experiences, so even if they grew up or, I mean, when we spoke the first time we met, I was very interested, I mean, the personal archetypes of whatever culture you grew up with from did those come up more in, in so that's exactly kind of what, what I asked when, when we met. But I think that in today's world, people can have these experiences and spirituality can be something without belonging to any religion. Um, this is a question for Ian. Yes. Um, which I'm fascinated to hear because I experienced, my son had a similar experience and I observed it and heard it and had to live through it. So I was just wondering whether you ever felt the need to speak to anybody to uh, because while it was still so very real and present and you couldn't understand it and nobody else was really understanding it you went off and you hid in Prague and um, I was actually there experiencing what you were saying he couldn't make sense of it and he started wanting us all to say the Lord's Prayer but I didn't even know that he knew it because he hadn't been brought up even in when he went to school it barely said and he was panicked, he was sort of trying to clutch onto things. So he, this is some time ago now. So like you were saying, it's fading. But he's got a disappointment, a bit of sadness and disappointment now about it all. Um, he doesn't really want to talk about it because was it real, wasn't it real? Right. And yet he has extraordinary positive, mm. really strong beliefs and feelings at the time. And he wanted us all to hold hands. He wanted the world to be a better place. It's just what you really were describing, except he probably wasn't as articulate. Hmm. Um, my question really is, I think, you know, who could you reach out to? I didn't know what Ian said, hmm. and I didn't know who he could reach out to. And one of his ideas related to that: couldn't you create something on the internet to help people to hold back their lives because he felt so. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that um, you know, it feels a sense of disappointment. Uh, I mean, I, I, at the time, I, my, both my, because I was living in India, things were difficult. My, both my parents came over, so I had, I was able to talk to my mother about it. Um, but, yeah, it was difficult to articulate it all. And I, um, I mean, really, other talking to my mum, I didn't really have anyone I could talk to, talk to about it at all. Um, but uh, you know, in terms of you know how to how to process it and how to take something of value from it, you know, that's even now, even after the intensity of the experience is gone, that's been the thing that I have also wrestled with so very much um, because it really feels very, like I said, it feels self-sabotaging to just say no, this was an aberration and that's all there was to it, and it's like taking acid or something to get away with it. But, um, you know, to do that is really, it is sad. And I can understand the disappointment if that's the kind of the conclusion he's got to now. Um, I think I would s say just hang on to whatever positive things there were. You, those positive things were real. Those were real experiences that he had. And, and they are meaningful. There's meaning in those, in those emotions, I think, in those feelings. Um, I mean, taking part in the study helped. It, it actually has. It had helped me focus my mind if I forgot to process it. I think that that is that's helped. That helped me, and hopefully it has helped other people. We are still open <laughs> to anyone who'd like to volunteer, including sons of people here. <laughs> Try to raise my hand uh, and I'm a little bit nervous to speak. I just wanted actually to know how many people here have had that kind of experience. Yeah, please just all come talk what to I'm us. What I'm trying now. to say was, uh, I felt a little bit, you were quite lonely. There was a lot of criticism and looking at commercial aspects of religion and whatever. I was raised a, a Catholic. I'm an agnostic now. At some point, I lost my faith completely. But I had exactly, I would use very similar words to what Ian said, actually, as well. The 
felt like, I'm going to use a rude word now, felt like a spiritual orgasm. It was so strong, the experience. But my step to actually get out of that was, I drove everybody crazy around me because I wanted everybody to feel like me and they couldn't understand it because it was somehow a language of love that you had to experience yourself to actually be able to understand it. And it was truly a gift. I can't say it any other way. I can't remember exactly what happened, you know, in terms of all the details. It's a while ago. But I remember the word gift clearly. And I feel I had some kind of visual experience as well. But my question to the panel was, because I did speak to people since then, religious people and people who are um, atheists like yourself, um, one of my friends basically thinks, they looked at each other and said, that I had come out of a depression now, I don't know the biochemistry behind that in terms of neurology. And I wondered if that was part of your study as well, to look at people who might have come out of a depression and have this kind of serotonin kind of boost, so to speak. Uh, because obviously everything we experience in my book, uh, because I'm scientifically minded in some ways, is everything can be explained with chemistry or with chemistry. In the body. So, so feelings we have have some kind of impulses which are triggered by some chemical reactions in our body. It might have been hormones or whatever. I don't want to go down the blurb. But this person said to me, maybe you came out of a depression. And he didn't even know my situation at the time because it was a very stressful time I had. My own rational experience to what happened to me was, first of all, it was God talking to me. That was a very clear moment. That was so clear to me that it was God and he gifted me this kind of experience. But then, as you move on, I had a whole year, Ian, I beat you. I had a whole mm -hmm. year of floating. Really kind of, I didn't question things. I knew exactly what I was doing. I never thought, I never feared. I had no fear whatsoever. And at the same time, as I came out of it, I thought, did this happen to me because I was so stressed in my, my little world that my rational mind suddenly crashed against each other so I couldn't make rational decisions and something else stepped up? Um, well, so to answer the, the question about the depression, we have medical records, so we, we, we can answer that question pretty clearly. For the most part, I think we had one person who was, had comorbid depression who was really diagnosed in the, in the course of that, and that was something that didn't necessarily change despite these otherwise positive experiences that were fairly consistent. So, I mean, in, in our study, depression is not really a, a strong feature, and that's not, that doesn't quite match, but we also have a pretty particular sample because we're choosing people who very clearly have an epilepsy diagnosis and are very clearly having these experiences related to other seizure symptoms. So it may not quite match exactly what you're what you're describing here, but I mean, some, there obviously are some similarities. So I'm potentially to be here more after the panel. Um, I, I think we, we're closing thoughts. So I mean, we are, we're a little over time. So if there's anything you'd like to add, um, I'm going to open it up to you all to do so. Uh, two quick comments. So, firstly, if you want any further reading, I recommend Dostoevsky's book on the idiot. Uh, Dostoevsky had these seizures and he wrote about them in the idiot. Second point is, if you would like to take part in our research, uh, please give us your names afterwards. Anyone with epilepsy and unusual experiences, anyone with mystical experiences who doesn't have epilepsy, uh, would be very welcome, and their relatives. I guess um, one of the things that I um, that I was asked when kind of dealing with this is, I guess as a religious person, to explain some of these things through science, through chemistry, what does that do to the balance of, of um, I would say, of religion, of um, explaining things, you know? And I, and I thought to myself that, and maybe this is more from a Jungian psychological point of view, that the the... the the images that we have that come from our unconscious, that come from deep, deep, deep inside, for the mystics, looking up is the same as looking inward. And I think there's something about 
this study that really kind of like points to that in a deep way, that being able to be in tune to something coming from deep inside, to me that that is uh, a, a true voice. You know, in a lot of the mystical experiences, when Moses stand at the, stood at the burning bush, we're told that there were a lot of other people there, but they didn't hear what he heard. When Daniel hears the voice of God speaking, other people were there. They didn't see what he saw. We each have a rich individual life happening within us. And what we hear and what we see and where we're guided from the inside, this imminent deep voice is, is, is deeply spiritual and deeply religious. I'm fascinated by the research you're doing. I'm happy to, to, to hear about it, to be part of this, uh, of this panel. So thank you. Thank you so much, Mordecai. I think that's a wonderful place to end, actually. So could you please join me in thanking our panel? For-